uh, if we play a video game and we fail, it's not actually unpleasant because it's in a video game. Uh, of course, that doesn't actually seem quite right. There's been such a focus on, on depression in the game, but it really is about not just him experiencing depression, but it's also about how life is depressing. Welcome to Built to Play, your dose of video game news and culture. I'm Armic Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, Ubisoft kills goats and Microsoft kills jobs. Also, scammers and squatters are one and the same. Sony settles and the annual salary survey brings silver linings. Plus, this week we're all about failure, starting with Jesper Jewell on being a sore loser. Then, Will O'Neill tells about actual sunlight and failure in real life. And we experiment with facts and figures and visit a local trivia night. But first, someone at Ubisoft watched a goat sacrifice, and I didn't even make that up. It's also not libelous for the first time, and I think this uh, this podcast yeah. sort of, like storied existence. We have threatened we have threatened to call many people out on their goat sacrifices, and this time we have proof. Yeah, we didn't. This is a little bit off topic, not too off topic. Right. Didn't Sony sacrifice a goat for a God of War thing once? Yeah, I, yeah, and I feel like they they basically sacrificed the goat for that ad for Ratchet and Clank. <laughs> where they sucked up a sheep. Oh, yeah. And I think they also sacrificed a goat to make sure The Last of Us would sell well. Exactly. But that wasn't like a public thing. <laughs> so uh, as part of a Vice-Ubisoft collaboration, two Ubisoft employees got to hang out at a goat sacrifice, you know, for research or something. Research or something is how you can describe most Vice enterprises. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, this is fairly unique. I mean, it's, it's specifically for Far Cry 4. And yeah. the guys involved were Mark Thompson and Paul Fournier, narrative director and associate director of said Far Cry 4. They went to Nepal to, re uh, Nepal to research their fictional Himalayan setting and ended up catching a goat-related rumor. Yeah, there was apparently, they heard that a guy was going to sacrifice a goat. And the Vice reporter they were with, like, we should check out this goat murder. And it turns out the sacrifice was being made to Kali, the Hindu goddess of change and destruction by a man for his family, uh, for some positive thing. Like, they didn't make it 100% clear. I'm sure all will be enlightened if I were to bother watching the documentary. Vice has been pretty close to the Far Cry 4 team, and the Vice guy to Libraria served an inspiration for the game's villain, Pagan Min. Pagan Min? Uh, Pagan Min. Specifically, they were inspired by the Liberian General Butt Naked, or Joshua Milton Bilahi, a general who fought in the Liberian Civil War completely naked except for his shoes because he thought it would make him inv invincible for the bullets. So, you know, like, a, a great role model for... For, uh, people, for people in other cultures. Yeah, and writers. and uh, Apparently, actually, Vice did a pirate documentary for uh, Far Cry 4, for, for, sorry, for Assassin's Creed uh, 4, Black Flag. So I don't think it involved any uh, Ubisoft employees getting scurvy. That would have been a great game of Ubisoft employees vomiting up onto a ship and um, having their nails fall, their fingernails fall I off. would really like to watch a documentary of people of Ubisoft employees trying to play Assassin's Creed 4. <laughs> and just, like, I think that's basically the same thing. Like, their fingers would fall off, they would vomit out their lungs, and in the end they would say, eh, 7 out of 10. Um, <laughs> See, here, here's what I'm wondering about is if... Um, is if there's that there's a missing sequence from Assassin's Creed 4 where you go off and see and experience all this stuff because I mean that game is that part of that game is you play as a Ubisoft employee making Assassin's Creed yes, right and many times as in that I've tried to play Assassin's Creed 4 for the last week so I'm an expert on Assassin's <laughs> Creed 4 right now many times they will pull you away from your job of cool but boring pirating to your boring but boring job as an Ubisoft employee <laughs> where everybody has the same guitar and the same skateboard all emblazoned with company logos and everybody's cubicle is lined with Assassin's Creed figures. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I like, well, you know what? At least Ubisoft called themselves the evil company. Mm-hmm. So, oh, well, they were purchased by the evil company. They were good until the evil company bought them. Uh, they also at one point make you, like, there is a part where you have to walk through Ubisoft Montreal's lobby, basically, and they make you uh, lo- they make you look at a high-resolution screenshot of Assassin's Creed Liberation before you can move on. <laughs> <laughs> Which I almost feel is something, that has to be self-aware. There's got Somebody at Ubisoft has to know how ridiculous that is. Well, you know what? That Ubisoft has kind of been going up its butt with a lot of these random adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, there, so I mean, and one thing is that they have they've had a bunch of characters so far, especially Far Cry, that are just insane. I mean, mm-hmm. what, Va- Voss in the last in the last Voss part? was he was just a crazy person, yeah, uh, who won awards for the writing of him, and all of his writing was the most cliche thing I've ever heard in my life. And what there was a there was a crazy general or of some kind in Far Cry Two, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there was. I can't remember exactly. I did not. I've got to be honest. Did not pay attention to the plot much in Far Cry Two. I was kind yeah. of really enjoying the part where my bones break, <laughs> and the and fire is everywhere. Um, and this new guy is apparently supposed to be. He has to seem completely sane in their own universe, but when you take him out of that context, he's just crazy. Unfortunately, I don't think you'll be fighting him naked. So, what is the point of this game? Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's I feel I feel like Voss got too much acclaim, and they're just trying to recreate that guy with Hey, this one, this is based on the guy who is actually naked, mm-hmm. but he also dresses like Miles Edgeworth. Yeah, I which mean, I guess is a good substitute for being naked. Velvet <laughs> suits are pretty good. Like, that's a step above nudity. It's like the Victorian idea of nude, where mm-hmm. if you were wearing just a just a shirt with a vest, you were basically naked. You were ba- basically if you were wearing. Listen, if your cravat didn't have at least six frills, why are you even getting out of the house? <laughs> why are you even out of getting bed in the morning if you sleep with a six frilled cravat? Speaking of dressing for success, it looks like. Um, where it looks like in back in two, June 2003 um 2013 too, sorry <laughs> looks like back in June 2013 um there's a bit of a con that got instigated? So, so sort of and not quite. It's really weird and confusing. So so back in June 2013, Maxim Pashinin and his studio Kilobyte Inc. kickstarted their adventure game Confederate Express, which was a lot, it got positive press from our paper shotgun and Destructoid and a couple of other places. Uh, they quadrupled their initial asking price uh, of $10,000. And they then set the game's release date in June of 2014, which was last month when you're listening to this or when we're recording this. And then they missed it. So this month, July 2014, a month after their initial date, they announced the restructuring of Kilobyte Inc., which would then cause delays. To be fair, I don't think it's super surprising when a Kickstarter doesn't meet its initial date. Like, that just yeah. happens sometimes. Well, it happens to all games. And I think those those dates are incredibly optimistic because you don't want to pay for a game that's like, maybe late 2015. Q3 Eternity. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so as an apology for the delays, Pashinin offered backers a reward pack for another kilobyte game, Knuckle Club. The catch is that Knuckle Club is currently being Kickstarter with uh, only $742 raised of their 250000 goal as of writing with, I believe, 20 days to go. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, you you can't do that. that that's not, <laughs> you literally can't do that. <laughs> that is, that I believe is against the Kickstarter term of services and like crazy illegal. Yeah, like you. Can't. Oh, you get this other game for free. It just doesn't exist yet, and maybe never will. <laughs> that is the worst piece of advertising or marketing or uh, public response. I that wow. That's like EA telling you that for because of your trouble in SimCity, we're giving you this dust and good feelings. <laughs> Pashinin says the delay was caused because you didn't see it, but he did. Armand did a really beautiful interpretive dance to Dustin Good Feelings, which is also the name of my favorite Sticks album. Uh, 
Poshinin says the delay was caused because a company bought Kilobyte, a studio that has, again, released not a single game and has delayed one to promise a one that doesn't exist yet, and that company wanted Knuckle Club finished first. Now, I don't think this is true because let's jump off the internet and jump to California where we can tell you a completely unrelated but totally related story. Corey Chogel rented her Palm Springs apartment to a pair of brothers for 44 days. They complained about the cloudy tap water, the gated entrance to the condo, and demanded a full refund later. Yeah, so Chogel had a bad feeling about the two, so she agreed. And on May 27th, after the refund was processed, Airbnb told her it was okay to ask them to leave. They didn't. Right. Uh, so a little just tiny thing about Airbnb is uh, the way it works is that you pay, if you are staying for more than a month, you pay basically at the end of the month. So they were paying for 44 days. So they paid for their first 30 days at the end of the 30-day period. And then they would then have to pay for the extra 14 days. Simple. Uh, since they didn't leave, uh, Chogul then, you know, tried to get them out. They sent a bunch of antagonistic text messages. They still wouldn't leave. So... The best course of action was to kind of just leave them alone and kind of hope when this run out, but it didn't work. So under California law, any occupant for home for more than 30 days is considered a tenant under a month-to-month lease. So getting rid of the, the brothers is now an eviction case, which is expensive and could last months in court. Airbnb gave her her 14 days money and not her 30 days money. It turns out actually when the 30 days ran up, you're like, well, okay, now they have to pay the 14 days and maybe they'll pay that. And that's when their checks bounced. Or their credit card numbers bounced, and that's when it became a serious issue. <laughs> that's when they told. That's when both Airbnb and Shogul told them, "You literally legally have to leave," and they pulled out the squatters' rights. <laughs> the two brothers are Maxim and Dennis Pashinin, founders of Kilobyte Inc., who are very far from home right now. Surprise! Uh, Kilobyte Inc. was founded in Florida, then incorporated in uh, Texas later on, and now is, the brothers are in Palm Springs, hiding from the law. So. Uh, <sighs> This is kind of inexplicable, according to Andreas Ing, who is listed as a member of the music team on Confederate Express's Kickstarter page. The pair haven't been in contact for almost a year. He's made one track and is still waiting on hearing waiting on hearing back for them, making more. Um, again, this game was kickstarted a year ago. You'd expect to hear something. Uh, in again, in an update, he said the Kilobyte has been bought. We don't know by who. There's no business records of it being purchased, even though they are, you know, they're a public enough company that they have they're incorporated. Um, so they do exist under law somewhere, yeah, somewhere in, a, in Florida and Texas. Okay. But they are currently squatting in a California apartment refusing to pay for it. Okay. Because, again, their checks are bouncing, but they still consider themselves legal tenants. Uh, he is also claiming that the, she, he is going to sue them because he says the tap water gave his brother an ulcer. Uh, but his brother has not responded or anything. This is all reported, I believe, through the Wall Street Journal. Um, this is bizarre. It's like, really insane. The o- in fact, people only found out this was the two of them because somebody noticed his name was Maxim, spelled the same way this guy's name is spelled, which is not a terribly common name. And when a news team looked it up, they found this Kickstarter, a local news team, like a Palm Springs news team, and they showed his picture on the apartment. like, oh, yeah, that's the guy. And if you try to call the number on uh, Confederate Express's uh, website, you will get a guy called Dennis, who, a recording, like, you know, leave a message after the tone. This is Dennis's number, uh, who is, of course, the brother Dennis Passionate. Right. So this is bonkers. What? Yeah, okay, so it doesn't really seem any resolution to this, except I really hope that the people who were, um, who had their Kickstarter, who kickstarted this game, get some kind of return. I mean, like, look, sometimes Kickstarters just don't turn out, and that's part of Kickstarter's policy, mm-hmm. is that, hey, sometimes things go badly, mm-hmm. and 
you're not going to get any return for it. It's it's nice that sometimes people try to offer something yeah. like, um, hey, here's your money back, or alternatively, here's this other thing that we're going to we do can, with. We can offer. Yeah. Um, They're and... offering, again, dust and good feelings, and it looks like that's what they've been paying their rent with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I... The other like this reminds me a little bit of the Yogs casting that happened uh, last week, where right. they couldn't deliver on the game and have canceled it, right? Yes. Um, but at least there, they were pretty upfront about that. That wasn't a scam. They tried. They, and it's well, it's it was, I think somewhere along the line, there's a bit of a scam. Also, the idea of a podcast then becoming a um, mm-hmm. uh, a game is probably a bad idea to begin with. Well, the podcast wasn't was it officially affiliated with them? I can't recall. It was semi officially at, le- at least to some extent. They were I think they were in contact with it. Yeah, mm. uh, to the point I think they were like, yeah, this is a cool thing, but we're not giving it. We don't have any you know skin in this game. Yeah, and then I think the end result was that they got some kind of Steam game. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's nice when the Steam that, game is apparently good. Yeah, I've heard good things about it. Yeah, but yeah, I it, this is bananas. And Airbnb is okay. I stayed in one last month, and I didn't kill anyone apparently or steal a bunch of people's money on Kickstarter. Note: Airbnb is technically illegal in a lot of states and a couple provinces in um, in North America. Uh, I'm pretty sure in our hometown of uh, our home province of Ontario, it's the legal things are uh, they're murky. Me I at think, best. Yeah. In British Columbia, it's just straight up illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean. With that in mind, this stuff could just this could just could get dragged out for ages, yeah. especially since no one really has a grasp on what the legal. Yeah, we, I'm not really sure what it's like in California too. Yeah, the or Palm Springs specifically, what their like municipal laws might be like. The other thing is that Airbnb recently redesigned their logo, and now it looks like a butt. <laughs> <laughs> and I really recommend everybody look that up and and, and enjoy that. Um, don't buy this game; it'll probably never exist. Speaking of things that people don't buy, um, does anyone actually want a PSP game? I don't think so. So back in April of 2011, a security breach knocked out PSN for a few weeks. You might remember this because it leaked out 77 million user pa- usernames, addresses, and maybe even their credit card info. Later that year, Sony offered some free games as compensation, but some people weren't happy with that alone. Some customers got together and filed a class action lawsuit while UK authorities fined Sony about um, £250,000, which is roughly how many dollars? Uh, $396,000. Let's call it $400,000. For a serious breach of data of the Data Protection Act. This week, Sony agreed to a $15 million settlement of giving away free game services and refunds. Claimants who didn't participate in the Welcome Back program when PSN service resumed back in 2011 uh, will be eligible to receive two benefits on a first-come, first-served basis up to an aggregate cap of $6 million. These will presumably be the same games as they were in the Welcome Back trial period, maybe a couple differences, which is to say Infamous 1, Little Big Planet 1, a bunch of stuff you don't want or already own. Which, I mean, those games are basically free now. Like, they were free on PS Plus forever. Little Big Planet 2 is still free on PS Plus. <laughs> you can trip over copies of those games and mm. accidentally have them. I have. I didn't know that I had Little Big Planet 2, I and s- I have it. I sleep on a bed of Infamous 2. I sleep on a bed of Infamous 2. I use Infamous 1 to to wipe my butt after I poop. That is not talking about... Daniel Rosen does not represent the interests of... Uh, <laughs> of built to play, play yeah. Sony, Infamous. <laughs> I'm more of a prototype, man. Oh, well, now we're getting into a fight. Um, <laughs> no, uh, so, as part of this... Um, 
uh, SOE, Sony Online Entertainment, and Music Unlimited users are getting about $5 each in rewards. Um, so Sony continues to deny all claims while we continue to deny the allegations in the class action lawsuits, most of which have been previously dismissed by the trial court. We decided to move forward with a settlement to avoid the costs associated with lengthy litigation. Sony says they have no confirmed reports of identity theft related to the attacks and believe nobody's credit card info was even accessed, which doesn't really make it okay. <laughs> it also doesn't really make sense because so long as there's a breach, I'm pretty sure someone got access to something. It's like, just so you, like, listen, thieves got in, but they were really bad thieves. Like, that doesn't make it okay, guys. <laughs> A judge will decide on the settlement in a fairness trial in May 2015. Someone will willingly download a PSP game in 2015. I can't even fathom that. That doesn't even make sense. <laughs> like, who... Okay, let's just roll this back a second. The game... You will have the opportunity to download a PS3 game or a PSP game or both if you are so inclined. Um, you could also get, like, a three, P- a three PS3 uh, themes or, like... I guess some time in PS Plus. Which is crazy because just pick the PS Plus because that's like five free games. Yeah. <laughs> Even if it's a month, that's six free games. <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why would you pick Infamous when you can pick PS Plus and get Strider for free? Exactly, right. Now, the, 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 the thing that I think bugs me the most about this is that um, the problem with settling is, and this is what a lot of, what most corporations end up doing is that they don't, it's more expensive to carry out a long legal battle than it is to um, than it is to settle. And that's for both parties. Mm-hmm. I bet the guys in a class action suit aren't very happy that they have to pay for a lawyer this long, even if it's from like 200 people putting in a dollar. There's already been three years. Yeah. So um, what ends up happening is that they settle, and as a result of settling, the contract usually stipulates that they never have to uh, admit guilt, mm-hmm. which means Sony doesn't have to ever admit that they made a mistake here. Right, even though I have to imagine they've totally rehauled PSN. Oh, no, they had to have. I mean, the the bulk of the damage is already done, and Sony already has had went several years with um, mockery of having a bad mm-hmm. um, interface. They I, still have a bad interface, by the way. Yeah, still no. a terrible interface. <laughs> the, the browser interface, fantastic. <laughs> Man, um, before this turns into a giant griping section against Sony, um, let's probably move on to the next one. Um, so, Game Developer Magazine shut down last year, but it doesn't mean their annual survey s- salary survey has stopped. The, the salary survey being called Thunderdome. I, I call it Thunderdome because I feel like it's a lot more entertaining to say than Game Developer salaries. So, excluding students and educators, average salaries this year came in at $885,074 for men and $72,882 for women on average average women on the game industry made 86 cents on every man's dollar which is um already i mean we'll get to see the actual population gap which is huge mm-hmm. um the average salary for anyone in the industry was about $83,000 generally with about a 2% drop from last year women earn more than men in only one field QA where the average where the average woman's salary is about 56,000 um and a man's salary is 54 the programming engineering the only section in which women earn men in 2020 now sees an 18.5% gap in the money. And in terms of the amount of people, it's bananas. Yeah. Um, on a whole, the women do better in games in the games industry uh, than the national average. In the U.S. overall, uh, women make 77 cents on every dollar that men make, according to figures from a 2012 Census Bureau survey. Um, which I think the most important thing I think about this is that um, there's often the claim that women, reason women on average get less money is not necessarily that they take the same jobs as men, is that they, they tend to pick fields like teaching, where the average salary in general is mm-hmm. lower. But these are people working in the exact, the exact same, same fields. fields who are 
making again you know the difference was the difference there was a full you know there's a couple thousand dollar difference in the average salary and there's a lot there are again 20 percent differences in some of these fields yeah um and there's a cut. They did actually manage to go and talk to some indies. So um, solo indie developer earnings um, earned an average of eleven thousand in 2013, down 49 percent from 2000 2012's uh, 2012's uh, $23,130 average. Uh, individuals of a member team, however, fared better than their solo counterparts, earning an average of fifty thousand eight hundred and thirty-three dollars, up 161 percent from 2012's nineteen thousand four hundred eighty-seven. Um, the drop in solo salaries is alarming while the rise in team salaries seems like a promising thing but the survey warns that in five years the indie survey has been happening indie salaries fluctuate quite a bit it's hard to make any real calls on the data I think it ultimately this the thing is indie games are a much nicher market so it all depends on people who have access to money and that fluctuates as the market fluctuates. Yeah, and I, I also think that there's there does seem to be, I think there is there was definitely, like, if you're looking around, I think we're seeing a lot more indie studios these mm. days than we are seeing single-person per, single indie teams, uh, which I also think it kind of attributes to the higher salary. It's just like, I have a feeling these indie studios are making games a little higher production values and more marketability a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, these these are, are all, those are also generally the games that are making it onto PSN and stuff like that to reach an even wider audience. These are people who also have dedicated guys for PR and stuff mm-hmm. like that where they can actually manage like reach out and mm-hmm. make some kind of return. Yeah, they had, they had a list of like the individual salaries in each field and it was the business people who were making the you know the salaries that were in line with their counterparts in the non in the industry. Yeah. Um in there's also been a whole number of layoffs, and again, that's not surprising. Um, layoffs were up in 2013. 14% of respondents said they were laid off in 2013, up from last year's 12%. Uh, that's still, that's I mean, that's 9%, that's 6% lower than 2009, the survey's highest layoff year. Where 20% of respondents said they were laid off. Yeah. Um, of developers who were laid off, about 60 said, 60% said they found new employment, um, which is flat from 2012. Um, the next most popular post-layoff move was to go into consulting. Weird, but 22% people chose that path, up to, up from 16% last year, and 16% moved into indie development, up to, well, 10% said they have not found any new work in the game industry since they were laid off, down 2%. So more people are staying in the industry, I guess. A couple other notes. As part of a survey, response were asked of what they have to say about the industry in 2013, and some of the answers were made public. Um, Daniel, they, uh, yes. what do they have to say? So let's, let's roll down a couple of these. Pay is still terrible, and based on the attitude, uh, and based on the attitude of there are people, there are plenty of people who want your job. There's a lot of, at least in these, there's a lot of doom saying. For example, AAA can kill the passion of people. We have to care how we work on big projects. Uh, but then there's also stuff like, despite knowing how likely it is, I would love for the focus to shift back to AAA. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what we really don't want is we. I, I think that's misguided. I think what we don't want is to, for it to be AAA. I think we want a bigger variety of studios. As right. Well. We would to, like. Triple A shouldn't be the only thing. Maybe double A and single A and indie studios as well kind of go all over the place again, like we were kind of PlayStation era-ish. And I think, like, one of the big problems with just indie is that there is a broad swath of what indie is. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, that can be anything from... Like Capybara Games, where they have like a twenty-person team, they have, they have a fair large team working yeah. on three games at a time. While you have someone who's you have a lot of people who are just working in their basements trying to make a game. Well, so long as we have layoffs on the mind, um, Microsoft has some news for you. Yep, last week they announced eighteen thousand layoffs to go down over the next year. Um, the majority of cuts will affect the Nokia division of a country, a company. But don't worry, the games are going to have some fun as well. 
Yep. First up on the chalking block is Microsoft Entertainment Studios, the internal branch dedicated to making original TV-style content for Xbox One. Xbox head Phil Spencer said in a prepared response that through the restructuring, executives, quote, plan to streamline a handful of portfolio engineering development efforts across Xbox. It's, yeah, um, Xbox head Phil uh, Spencer is mentioned that some of the TV efforts will be moving forward. I mean, we're talking that... Uh, even the Halo thing is going to be showing at Comic Con, and there that that documentary they did of digging up, up ET. Yeah, yeah the that's... Steven Spielberg uh, Halo show that's supposed to be on Showtime is yeah. apparently still happening. Yeah, but everything else is dead in the water. Yeah, that thing. I think we talked about them like two months ago. It's like we did not understand the direction they were going in. No, and I think that Microsoft kind of recognized that to some extent as well. Um, that maybe trying to turn. Trying to turn the Xbox division into Sony might not have been a great choice. Right. Well, considering they didn't even talk about it at E3 this year. Yeah. I which, think it was the writing was kind of on the wall of where that was headed. Right. But we, I think we were very confused, like, why they were going for something. We, we were thinking, like, if you want to grow your audience, don't make shows that are aimed squarely at the, you know, male 15 to 22 demographic. And that's what they were doing. Um, but I really could, we, we couldn't really understand it, and now it's dead. According to Recode, who is reporting that the um, entertainment division is the first one to go, sources say the division was disorganized, and Microsoft's increasingly gaming-first philosophies were scaring away potential partners, which is really funny to me, considering that's what we always want to hear out of Microsoft. <laughs> the the thing is, I mean, then also considering the Nokia cuts, um, that's like, that's a good solid percentage of their workforce. 18,000 people, that's a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Um, this, Thank God it's not going to hit the Xbox, but I think this does signal some big restructuring. And it also signals that perhaps the Nokia deal was not their smartest decision they ever mm-hmm. made to buy that cell phone company. Well, to get into phones. Yeah, so they're bring, part of this is also they're going to be focusing on the Windows phone operating system instead of Nokia's brand of handsets, which are incredibly popular in places like Africa and um, and Asia, where... It's it the where all you need really is a um, a some kind of just phone that dials numbers and gets text messages. Mm-hmm. Um, Says the man with a micro who is holding a Windows phone <laughs> right now as we talk. Hey, um, they no is that one, a Nokia phone? That is that a Nokia no, phone? It's an HTC phone, okay. and I can tell you that the reason they got this was because it was free. So also on the chopping block on the game side of things, seventy five percent of Microsoft EMEA uh, Europe, Middle East, e- Europe, Middle East, and Asia positions will be cut, with current employees having to reapply for the remaining open roles, which sounds like the worst thing in existence. You got also consider that a lot of these cuts are going to be happening over a six month period, mm-hmm. meaning that you could be sitting at your desk and not know, and just questioning whether your job will still exist exists six months from now and then you might have to apply for the guy who sits next to you's job yeah yeah Which is, I, I maybe we call this maybe it was too early to blow thunderdome on the salary cap <laughs> this is thunderdome <laughs> yeah microsoft says this will have no effect on launching the xbox one in european territories in japan this fall i can't believe it's still not out in those territories when you just said that i, I went i just i immediately thought wait hold on it's been a year what are they doing like is, did they have to kill? Like, was there an internal struggle with the TV department who was just, like, strangling all their efforts to go to Japan? It's actually, there's an AKB-48-themed Gears of War game. It's literally just Gears of War 3, but you just it's just everybody's head is replaced with an AKB-48 member. Oh, that's good to know. Anyway, that's it for news this week. So when we play games, there's one thing we do a lot. It's fail. When you think about it, 
people, even longtime players, generally suck at games. We lose all the time. For every level we finish, we've died at least double that. Consider a game like Super Meat Boy. It's a platformer that's gotten on a lot of people's nerves. Get up there, you... Oh! What? What? Oh, what happened? I'll just kill myself. I don't even care. Are you kidding me? Oh! <laughs> Hey, I got, a game. I got an idea for you. Let's make a game that could turn out to be pretty fun, and then you make it hard as So why bother? In the long run, we screw up way more often than we win. I think we can say, generally speaking, uh, us humans don't like to fail. We prefer to feel uh, competent. And then the strange thing is that we seek out video games voluntarily, even though a lot of the time they actually make us pretty miserable because we, we fail, we don't do as well as we expected, and so on. And so the paradox is this paradox that we see, seem to seek out emotions, such as feelings of failure and inadequacy, that we normally don't like to seek out. And so, so that in a way, the, the book is a kind of exploration of that question, like why is it that we, we seek out something that seems to make us unhappy a large part of the time? That's Jesper Jewell. He studies game design in Denmark. He's actually a bit of a sore loser himself. He played a popular strategy game a while back, and he just wasn't very good at it. So my, one of my core examples is always StarCraft, and, and I think it's, part of it is because I, I mean, I, I'm kind of an academic and I, I write books and so on, and, and it, it intuitively seems to me that I should be great at StarCraft because it has all this like deep strategy and so on. But I'm not, I'm just not good at that game, right? And, and I, I, I've, it's a game I, I kind of I've several times put away for several years, and then I come back and I try to get into it. And, and I've never, I always have this, this thing that I, I go online, and then either I, I just play against someone and I'm much better than them, or usually I meet someone else and I'm just completely obliterated. And I, it's so frustrating to me. Lucky for us, it led him to write his book, The Art of Failure, all about losing. Jesper's not the only one looking into this by a long shot. It's important to know how much people are willing to lose. If you're a company like Ubisoft or Electronic Arts, you want to know how difficult you can make a level. If the average player loses a mission in Assassin's Creed three times, is that okay? Or what if they lose 30 times, but the levels are so short that it's not hard to start again? That's actually what the designers did in Super Meat Boy. If Meat Boy gets munched, the level immediately restarts. But even if you can figure out how much a loss a player can take, there's still the question of why we're okay with it in the first place. Well, it's just a game, isn't it? Jesper says, well, kind of, but we care more than we let on. Uh, if we play a video game and we fail, it's not actually unpleasant because it's in a video game. Uh, of course, that doesn't actually seem quite right. If you, look, if you look at people's facial expressions when they play a video game and they fail, then it doesn't really look like a heavy situation at all. So, so clearly, uh, something is wrong. And the answer I come up with in the book is that you can say that, that video games give us what you would call a, a kind of a, a plausible deniability, right? That, that whenever you fail in a video game or any kind of game, you can always, we have a number of kind of excuses, some of which are pretty bad, right? But excuses like, this is just a bad game, or I wasn't really trying, or it's just a game. And so you can say in a way that, that what games do is that they allow us to play quite literally with, with kind of confidence and, and inadequacy and success and failure, and then give us these kind of ways out where we can deny that we cared in the first place, even though that we might actually be kind of dishonest about it.
one example, now we just had the, the World Cup uh, finished, but, but uh, in, in the last World Cup, there was this example when the US was knocked out by Ghana. And uh, the New York Post had this pretty nice headline saying, this sport is stupid anyway. <laughs> and of course, the, the reason why you'd have a... Uh, uh, and I was in the US at the time, and, and, and it was this kind of... The, the, the US team was doing surprisingly well, and I think there was this kind of growing recognition of soccer as something interesting. And then, of course, they, they, they got knocked out, and then it's like, this sport is stupid anyway. Uh, so I think it just kind of goes to show that we, we, we kind of understand that we have a number of excuses available to us when we play games, such as saying, like, this is a stupid game anyway, or this sport is stupid anyway. Of course, we also know that these are kind of childish excuses. So, so when, when a, a newspaper does a headline, like, headline like this, it's also understood that it's kind of embarrassing that it, it's, you can only use it kind of half-jokingly when you're an adult anyway. In educational theory, there's this concept of learned helplessness. So, for example, if, you, if, if you're a student and you fail at a test, the, the worst, the most demotivating thing is, that, is, is if you feel that it's your fault rather than, say, the test being too hard, and you feel there's no likelihood of this ever changing, and you feel that this reflects on your intelligence badly in general, rather than so saying that you feel that you're bad at this, not just at this test, but at, at everything in the world, right? And so you can, you can think of the same in games. So if you fail, if you play a video game and, and you fail and you think that it's in a way your fault and there's no likelihood that you'll ever uh, overcome this failure, then that is, that is going to make you put down the game. And so, so you can say that Good video game design, especially for a very vid difficult video game, is in a way about making the player confident that there is some possibility that they will be able to progress if they just go back and try another time. But the interesting thing is, then, we'll take games that are very easy, things that are just really, there's no real challenge to it, and mock it for not having enough failure in it. Yes, yes. Yes, and so that's in a way my, my, my previous book, A Casual Revolution. I talked a bit about, I think there are two sides to it. One is, there certainly is a kind of, uh, the kind of gamer attitude, or at least like, there's a certain gamer identity around, based on this idea that games should be kind of really hard and, and challenging and, and unforgiving. And, and uh, a lot of the reaction against mobile games and also especially Facebook games was, I think, kind of hinged a lot on that idea and this assumption that, say, like mobile games or Facebook games were all very easy, which I don't think really necessarily is, is the case. Um, the other side of it is that, that I think if you, if you really are playing for, for a challenge, one of, the, one of the examples I give uh, is when I played this uh, puzzle game called Meteors. Um, the on the Nintendo DS, for some weird reason, the very first time I tried it, I just beat it just in one go without failing once, and this completely disgusted me. So I didn't I didn't touch the game for for <laughs> for several months. Uh, so the funny thing, of course, then was that in a way, of course, it's very very frustrating to fail, but this was much much more frustrating on a completely different level. This feeling of this experience of not failing at all, playing through a game I just purchased from from my hard-earned, hard-earned money. So so you can say that we, we it seems we dislike failing, but we even even more seriously dislike not failing. And so of course then you can say that I think 
what you can say that what game playing is a lot is in a way you can say that perhaps seeking out these kind of feelings of, of feeling inadequate in the hope or assumption that you can later escape that feeling of inadequacy and come out like feeling smarter or better at yourself at the other end. So you can say in a way it's a it's a kind of a, it's an emotional gamble, right? So you you're gambling a bit of unhappiness uh, in the in the hope that you'll get some extra happiness uh, in the other end. And I think that's that that's probably the, I think that's part of really part of the core of it, right? This 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 thing that you're kind of you're willing to actually enter an emotional state that is not necessarily that pleasant, just so you can get out of it and feel good about getting out of it. But no matter how many times we screw up playing a game, we rarely do fail in the game. When you die, it's an error. It's a glitch. Mario saves the princess no matter how many times you fell off a cliff. Part of that is because it's really hard to simulate losing. Even if the game tells you you lost, it feels odd. You did solve that puzzle or kill that bad guy. For a very long time, especially if we think just about video games, the basic assumption was that you were playing, if not a hero, then at least you're controlling a character or caring for something that you wanted to care about, such that if you succeeded as a player in the game, say the character you were controlling would, generally speaking, come off well at the end and, and be happy. And so, so I, I have this illustration in the book where saying that the typical video game ends with the player being very happy and going, yeah, and then the, 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 the character control also is very happy and, and says, yeah, we did it. And so there's a very kind of complete kind of symmetry between what the player does and what the player feels and what the character on screen feels. And likewise, if you fail, then the character on the screen is going to be uh, unhappy just the way, the way the player is. And then what I, what I, one of the things I've talked about is why it's so hard to do like tragic video games because this kind of turns it on its head, right? That, that you work very hard as a player to finally beat the video game, but then at the end, suddenly you, if it's a tragic video game, then perhaps your, your main character has actually suffered a lot or dies or something. And then it's, it's just weird to see this uh, juxtaposition of the super happy player who finally beat the game and the unhappy uh, character or even dead uh, player character. And so I'm talking about this is why this, this is kind of this juxtaposition is why, the reason why people haven't done that many tragic video games, why, why the, the, the kind of the player controlling the hero and the happy ending has been dominant. Um, I do talk about a, a few kind of more recent examples. So right in, in, in Red Dead Redemption, you, you do end up like almost at the end, you can, spoiler alert, you, you sacrifice yourself for, for, for your family. Uh, but then that has this kind of, then it becomes this kind of, um, kind of almost somewhat sentimental video game, right? This, the, the hero sacrifices himself for his family and so on. But the, the only way the game, the way that the game does it is actually by, by taking control away from you at that very moment. Well, you can try to shoot some of those enemies at, in this kind of final death scene, but there's no way you can do it. Anyway, you had this whole game where every time you fail, it will go back to the next last uh, save point, and then at the very end, suddenly you can only progress by 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 by, by actually dying. 
And so the game has to has to kind of change the whole setup in order for to get past that kind of moment of tragedy or the moment of the the, the player character to failing. Of course, there are a few. I'm, I'm saying that there are a few examples of this historically, but it's pretty rare. But for this reason, in some types of, of role playing games, such as like live action role playing, um, people have been doing very very kind of crazy experiments, such as games involving being in a in a nuclear shelter and so on, and where you have like very a kind of range of, of, of topics or emotions that you don't necessarily tend not necessarily to deal with all that often in, in video games in, in that direct form. But I think it, in a way it's easier or more straightforward to do that in, in, a, in a role playing game because as a player you might actually be performing a role. So, so the, a player in a, in a live action role playing game may do this, may play consciously in order to create a proper a story or character arc, rather than just trying to optimize their points. And so I think that this is why this seems to be easier to do in, in role-playing games than, than in, in like pen and paper or analog role-playing games than it is in, in video games. All right, I'd like to thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Jesper Juhl is an associate professor at the Royal Danish Academy of Fine Arts and is a visiting associate professor at MIT. You can catch his musings on the game design through his blog, The Dologist, or pick up his book, The Art of Failure, an essay on the pain of playing video games. Just because it's hard to simulate failure doesn't mean that people haven't done it, though. Jesper recommends games like Shadow of the Colossus, where you don't so much fail as have a ferric victory. But then there's games where you do mess up. You lose, and you lose bad, no matter what you do. For example, let's talk about the game Actual Sunlight. It's about a man, Evan Winters, who's facing serious depression. The game's about what happens when you don't get help, or make good decisions that can improve your life. So Actual Sunlight doesn't give you all that many options. We do all have choices. We're not automatically going to do something but in life over time things become so habitual and so ingrained for you that even though you technically have a choice you are so inclined to do one thing that you're going to do it 99 times out of 100 you know and this goes into so many things so many things you could say about the real world as well i mean uh the reality what's the reality of people who say lose weight so lots of people lose weight People don't generally like to talk about the fact that, like, I don't know, well over 90% of people will actually gain it back. What is the real recidivism of people who complete, you know, drug and alcohol treatment programs? It's actually astoundingly high. That's designer Will O'Neill, the game's creator. Early on in Actual Sunlight, Will directly tells players that if they're young, they have way more options than someone in their early 30s. There's still more potential in youth. As he's gotten older, he's seen his own opportunities disappear. I think it's interesting because I think about myself. I'm 33 now, and I think about 10 years ago. And I really feel like I would have understood, or I would have thought I understood actual sunlight. I would have been like, oh, yeah, I'm right there with that. That's totally what my life is like, too. And really, like, if I could only talk to myself then, be like, you have no idea really how different your life will be 10 years from now. I think there's a huge seismic change that goes on between a person's like early to mid-20s and their late 20s to early 30s um, 
that that really is not appreciated when you're in your young 20s because I think some people move on to another phase of adulthood and some people kind of get left behind, to be honest. And, uh, you know, I, that, that was sort of what I was trying to illustrate, I think, in that point, that just because you think you're, you're an adult now because you're 23, 24, something like that, believe me, come back in seven or eight years, you're going to understand what it's like to really be in the situation you only think you're in now. In your own experience, have you seen doors close for you as uh, time has gone on? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, being in my early 30s, like you see a lot of people. Well, the big one, of course, is you see people get married. You see people have kids. You see people go on to other phases of their careers. And, you know, for myself personally and for Evan in the game, there's a there's a real arrested development there. And it sort of is, he is sort of just going through the same loop he was even seven or eight years ago. Some things change. I mean, I think, you know, maybe you make a little bit more money than you did when you were earlier on in your career. Um, but that might be about it. And your career might not really have any progression the way you thought it would. Uh, your relationships don't really change. Uh, you know, your 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 family, your parents get older. Uh, you start to have sort of like some like not big health problems necessarily, but the, but the things that happen is when you're not as young as you used to be. And uh, life just starts getting for real in a way that, that, you know, you're not necessarily prepared for. And you start to feel like, what is it you were really going on for all this time? And then there's the matter of depression. Life can be depressing, and depression, the medical kind, can be all-consuming. Whether it's stubbornness or simply how the world is, actual sunlight tries to convey how things can get stuck. Well, I think it's it's interesting because there's been such a focus on, on depression in the game, but it really is about not just him experiencing depression from a clinical or a neurochemical standpoint, but it's also about how life is depressing, how, you know... There are these sort of white collar jobs that are very miserable. You know, it's it, the game is very much based on my experience in in sort of marketing and communications agencies and the really horrific grind and the the amount of uh, really unhappy people you meet in that kind of line of work. And it, it's easy to sort of I think take a look at uh, other people and see what's going on with them and what's wrong and know what they should do. A big part of what I was trying to do, I think in actual sunlight is to show Evan is have Evan see a lot of people who really actually have a lot of the same problems that he does and yet not connect that in a certain kind of way and um, be able to see other people's problems in a way that he's unable to sort of see his own, if that makes sense. Fair enough. Um, does depression ever have the element of kind of clouding at least in your experience, um, your own flaws or at least clouding a way you could address those flaws? I think so. I mean, I think it was the interesting thing I found throughout this is that, you know, a lot of people have reacted to the game by saying like, oh, it's such a it's such a truthful and genuine kind of representation of the skewed and warped perspective of, of the depressed person. And I guess in a way, this is how I know I really am depressed, because if this is genuinely my perspective, the things that I'm saying. And people are like, wow, it must be must be crazy to see things in a way that's so untrue but i don't perceive any of the things the way that i'm seeing things uh, as being untrue has has your depression ever been as bad as evans in the game yeah absolutely i mean i think um absolutely i mean it's uh it's sort of i guess it's sort of persistent i mean it's something that i've sort of lived with for a long time it's not nearly um, as, as heavy and as serious as some other people's, and it does tend to come and go. Um, but, but absolutely, yeah. Is there anything that you do to kind of at least help alleviate or try and get, get out of 
um, the the situation you're in? I mean, I get up and I go to work. I mean, I, I mean, I I live life. I mean, I, I just go through it. I mean, again, I think that's really kind of what actual sunlight's about. Depression for most people is never going to be something that they're ever going to point blank solve and then go off and be somebody else. You just kind of go through life is the best you can. You know, I, I care about my family. Uh, I care about my friends and I accept that at this point in the game, I've missed out on a lot of things that are, are probably never going to happen to me. Uh, I'm probably never going to get married and have children, not because I'm an awful person or this, that, but because, um, you know, there's something about me that doesn't have a future. There's something about me that um, somebody shouldn't partner with to build. There, you know, so on and so forth. There's things about yourself that you come to accept, but life goes on, and uh, you just try to do the best you can, anyways. That's that's kind of what I think the overarching message of the whole game is about. That's the kind of question that I feel like Evan went to the rooftop to ultimately contemplate. Like, okay, certain things are over. You're never going to be happy in X, Y, and Z ways. But what now? If you if you want to die, if you want to kill yourself, you know, is that really what you want to do, or is it you're just upset about things that you're never gonna have? Whenever you see Will's point of view as cynical or true reflection of reality, actual sunlight doesn't approach failure the ways most games do. In some ways, most games are childish. Decisions have consequences much later in life. But in Call of Duty or Super Meat Boy, the game immediately restarts. You've said before that actual sunlight is more of an adult game. Um, what do you necessarily mean by that? Well, it's it's interesting that it runs kind of contrary to what you think of typically as an adult game. As gamers, we think, oh, this game is for adults. Uh, means, you know... Uh, obscene amounts of violence, uh, depictions of sexuality, uh, all that. Uh, for me, it's a game for adults because it's a game about adult problems. It's a game about uh, problems in the workplace, a game about problems with uh, loneliness in, in a lifelong kind of uh, solitude kind of sense, problems with depression and with health and uh, things that really I, I don't think a lot of young people have any cause to relate to, or if they do, uh, you know, they're very unfortunate. And I think in those cases, it, that would merit an exploration of its own. Do you feel that most video games approach things like failure in an adult way? Well, no. I mean, most video games are sort of, um, I use the phrase, invincible moron simulators. I mean, no, nothing is held to account in most video games. Um, you, you die and you are reborn and you get to try again. You get to constantly and persistently learn from total failure. That is the antithesis of adulthood, where even small mistakes can add up and things that seem insignificant can actually have much larger consequences. That's, that's, why, that's why play is such a huge part of childhood, because it's about um, getting to test yourself and, and boundaries without consequences. Once you're an adult, all that goes away. What ultimately prompted you to make actual sunlight? You know, it was just personally not seeing the kind of experience of the type of person I was represented, I don't think, anywhere in art and media. And I, I guess you're sort of sick of seeing it gotten wrong. You know, I've said this a lot, but I felt like a guy like Evan in a Hollywood film or a television network television show would be like, 
who he is at the beginning of the game, and then he'd be like, well, no, you know, I believe in myself and, and America, and I'm going to turn things around, you know, and then he'd, he'd start jogging, and he'd meet, like, a, a nice girl who loves him for who he is, and then, you know, someone recognize his talent and his potential and all this bullshit, and it's not the way it is. It's not necessarily as bad as it is in actual sunlight, but it's not, you know, the bad things happen, and then you just have to deal with them. It's not bad things happen and then good things happen that cancel them out. But the game does end somewhat optimistically. Evan doesn't kill himself, or at least we don't see him try. I think, you know, I wanted to leave players hanging on a choice of what is it that you would really want to do in that situation. I didn't want to have Evan Winters die. If I if I wanted him to kill himself in the game and jump off that roof, I would have depicted that. But I wanted it to focus on the question of does he want to do it or not? Not on the doing of the thing itself. It does also leave an element of hope to the game. Absolutely. I mean, I think some people have experienced it and said, you know what, I think maybe that's the point at which Evan kind of says, okay, I got to, uh, I just have to accept some things about myself, and there are still things that I want to do and, and want to be around for, and um, I'm, I'm going to do it for that, if for nothing else. And incidentally, I suppose that's what really happened, but it is the question uh, that I wanted people to hang on. I'd like to thank you so much for your time. This has been a fascinating conversation. Great. Thanks, Armand. Will O'Neill is a game designer based in Toronto. You can find him on Twitter at Will O'Neill. His upcoming game is The Highwayman. That's it for this week. Oh, come on. We can't end the show on that note. Let's have a little bit of success. Fine. But it has to be something I'm terrible at. That's a weird restriction, but sure. Do you have something in mind? Well, trivia nights have been popping up all over Toronto. I'm abysmal at it. I've never won a single round of those games. But I found a few people who weren't. Although listeners might note that uh, this isn't our usual style. This was made as part of a project at Ryerson University for a short documentary. Still about games, and I actually really like the piece, so we're going to share it here. So, so we got to probably have like five seconds to pick. What five things in your home do Americans wish were bigger? The cunning stunts were sweeping through Trivia Night until they were caught off guard by this question. They're a ten-time winner at the Cardinal Rule Trivia Club, and they're a round away from another golden VHS. The refrigerator. The refrigerator? Ooh, I like it. Show it on the board! Refrigerator! Oh my god. Sorry, team. That is not on the board. That's not on the top top. They're not doing so hot, but let's back up a bit. The Cardinal Rule is a cozy family restaurant in Parkdale, and every Wednesday it hosts Trivia Night. Tonight, the restaurant is mostly empty, aside from the three scattered teams and their host, Russell Harder. But yeah, I've always been a big fan of pop culture, uh, a real just enjoy of all sorts of like useless knowledge and trivial information. I'm also a big fan of uh, Alex Trebek and Jeopardy. I mean, he's a Canadian guy with a mustache, or used to have a mustache, quite like my own, yeah. 
But that's not the only influence. The first round is a quiz show, then it turns into The Price is Right, Family Feud, and finally, Jeopardy. Russell takes up five sheets of purple construction paper to represent categories. One of my favorite aspects of the uh, trivia club thing has always been able to do has always been able to do more of a home homemade sort of feeling to things. I just love the the feel of like construction paper and paint. Adds a certain look. By 8.30 at night, all the teams have arrived and sit somewhere along the Cardinal Rules one narrow hallway. Then Russell kicks back the spotlight and starts. Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to uh, Trivia Club with a David Bowie tie-in. For the 48th time, which is still pretty awesome, thank you all for coming on. An hour later, we're done the first round. Mark, Allison, Jermaine, and Dylan are four points ahead than the other teams, but this round is killing them. These cunning stunts sit a few feet away from the purple signs, and three of them have a beer in hand. Number one was tub. That's idiotic. No one wants a bigger tub. Yes, we do. No. The cunning stunts don't get a single point this round, so they're in second place. But then there's the finale. On the last question, they bet all 21 of their points. Any given Wednesday is your category. I have, I know how much everyone's wagering, so with that known, here's your question. She made her big screen debut as one of Cher's daughters in the film Mermaid. What was the answer? I think it was Christina Ricci. Actually, I'll say this, too. Uh, the answer for who played the daughter to Cher's character in the film Mermaid for her feature film debut any given Wednesday, that Wednesday would be Wednesday Adams herself, Christina Ricci. Yeah. So the cunning stunts take it home again, and they beat their own record. 11 wins over their previous 10. The cunning stunts, congratulations to the cunning stunts. As the restaurant clears out, they take home the glorious golden VHS, a spray-painted gold copy of Grease 2. Too bad only one of them owns a VCR. That's it for this week. I'm producer Armin Bali. And I'm features editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play is available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know how we're doing and more people find the show. We're usually on the air in the scope of Ryerson at 1 p.m. and we update the website on Sundays. Plus, check out our site for uncut interviews and features. You can find us on Twitter at built to play and me personally at Flarcon. That's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen. And I got Captain Falcon trains. Thank you so much for listening.